I'm David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. You know, I have such tremendous appreciation and respect for my Baptist forefathers and mothers. In the context of the English Reformation, they broke away from the Church of England to forge a new untrodden path of obeying Christ as the head of the church. They became convinced that the models of church government and ministry in their day, they had strayed from the gospel. And upon reading scripture, they saw how differently the church in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul was in comparison to the churches in England and Europe. So what should they do? Well, many sought to purify the Church of England, and they were dubbed as the Puritans. There were many good reforms that were made in England that distanced themselves away from the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. But many still could not agree with a church that was founded on King Henry's abandonment of his wife. So this led some to consider what exactly is, then, the proper foundation and constituting cause of a New Testament church? Well, what they did, they looked to Scripture for the answers. And we're going to learn more about this and more in this episode of Big Truths. As we explored in last week's episode, some of the first Baptists in England saw from Scripture that a church is created just like how a Christian is created. So God's Word creates God's people. And just as how individual men become Christians by hearing God's Word and the Gospel and believing it in obedience— so also is a local church created. It's by the preached word and in obedience to the word. And men like John Spilsbury, who was born in the year 1593, died in the year 1668, John Spilsbury and men like him, they believed that the New Testament ministry of the gospel, it was able to be taken up again and recovered. So many in reading the book of Acts and the New Testament letters and comparing that ministry to the ministry of their day, they recognized that the ancient primitive church, that ministry, it wasn't being practiced, but they believed that ministry could be taken up again. They believed that Christ, their king, still ruled his church by his word. They believed that they held in their hands, in the Bible, a sufficient word that told them about God's requirements for his people. And they saw in that word the ancient pattern of the New Testament church. And they believed that they could find in that word the guidance they needed to recover 
the model of the primitive, ancient, true, biblical, New Testament Christian church. So what they did, they sought to recover the community of truth. So last week, we explored John Spillsbury's 1643 book called A Treatise Concerning the Lawful Subjects of Baptism. A few years later, Spillsbury wrote another book to further flesh out his arguments. In the year 1646, he wrote a book called God's Ordinance, The Saints' Privilege. So it's in this book he more clearly laid out some of his arguments. In that book, he writes this, quote, Obedience to God depends upon nothing but only his word that gave being to order and the gospel order once instituted, stands firm still for all that believed enter upon it. As living matter upon the foundation, which is Christ, who calls all such as living stones to come under him and built upon him a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, who hath made a free and open way for all that believe to come with boldness into the most holy place, and much more, to enjoy all those privileges of grace inferior to the same. And such as God so works in by his Spirit, as the understanding is enlightened in the truth, the conscience convicted by it, and the men have faith in it, as his duty to obey it, with the way open for it, and the word calling to it, such by mutual agreement with the truth, or by faith one together in truth, which gives being to an orderly practice of truth, to such Christ opens, such the Spirit guides, such God approves. The Word of God commands them, and faith in them obeys. And thus, by the power of the truth, such as believe come to be one in Christ, the God of truth. End quote. So it's important for us to follow John Spillsbury's argument, follow the logic of the order of what he just said. So he says, the word of truth, first of all, is preached. And what does that do? Well, the preached word creates life. And just as God created all things in the universe by his powerful word, and that stands to this day, so also by his word he created the church, and that gospel order, that stands to this day. God, by his word, creates his people, even creating orderly churches by his word. And the word of truth that is preached that created them, is going to gather them together as faith in them obeys the word. And they, these Christians, they become one together in their orderly practice of truth in Christ, the God of truth. So there's steps to this process. Follow the order. In other words, number one, 
the word of truth is preached. Number two, men and women are converted by that word of truth. Number three, they're going to gather now together around that word. And number four, they're going to practice the word together in obedience. But what if our churches don't look this way? How do we recover the community of truth? Well, what steps did our Baptist forebearers take? Well, as we study church history, we see the first thing they did was to come to a conviction of the truth in God's word, the right preaching of God's word and the gospel, which leads to men's salvation. That's step one in recovering the church. So number one, the preaching of the truth. The first step in recovering the community of truth is expository preaching. The only legitimate preaching of the church is preaching which is rooted in the exposition of the Word of God. If preaching does not find its origin as being rooted in the Word, then it cannot be described as biblical New Testament preaching. Expository preaching. What's that? Let me give you a definition. Expository preaching is when the point of the text becomes the point of the sermon. So the way in which a man can be sure he stands and speaks on behalf of God is through the faithful handling of a passage of Scripture. So it is the job of this preacher to fulfill his vocation to which the church has called him by faithfully delivering the word that he has heard in the scriptures as he himself has received it. It is not the job of the preacher to give his own opinions in the pulpit because preaching should be the faithful application of scripture to today. Preacher should not be speaking on Scripture, but the preacher should be speaking from Scripture. X, E, X, from, drawing from the Scripture, whatever he says. That's why it's called expositional preaching. It is something that is coming out from something. It's an excavation of the treasures that we already have. It is an expositional posing of the word to the audience. So the preacher's job is not to invent, but rather to repeat something. Now, no doubt there are times when a preacher wishes to say some things in the pulpit that interest him or seem relevant to the times, but he should never use the Bible as a jumping point for his own thoughts. We should not come up with a sermon first and then later find a text that will suit the occasion. The scripture, the text, must be king. The scriptures must be the captain of the moment. Any other option would be disobedience to God.
A man should never approach the Bible as if he had unfettered power over the book. The text is king because it is the word from the king. Letting God speak through his word is the most relevant word for the times. You can't improve upon that. So in his study, the preacher must submit to God's word and put to bed all the whimsical thoughts he would like to say. As one theologian once said, Ultimately, the preacher must decide whether he will allow himself to compromise or whether, in spite of all the notions in the back of his mind, he will accept the necessity of expounding the book and nothing else. End quote. So maybe the reason why so many members have not been changed by the gospel and our churches don't look like the community of truth, it's because the gospel has been distorted or even rejected by the leadership because they're not faithful to read and to preach scripture. Insofar as a church has failed to understand and preach the gospel, it has failed to be a New Testament Christian church. A church will never be recovered as a community of truth until it submits to the word of truth. And the God-appointed means of guarding and entrusting this treasure of doctrine are the God-approved men called pastors. So you can read about this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You must find a church that is led by a group of men who can accurately handle the word of truth. You can read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because if we fail here, then any other good thing a church has is going to be accidental and not derived from the God-given means for his church to grow into maturity and spiritual health. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 4. Number two. Number two, the second way a church can be recovered as a community of truth. Number two, it must be enlightened to the truth. The second step in recovering the community of truth is to recognize that people who are not saved cannot be a part of the true church. They may be on the rolls of a church's membership, but the status of membership in a church should really be a vote of confidence in a person's membership in the universal church. So another word for this is regenerate church membership. So we must first be converted before we can covenant together to obey God's word. We must first obey God's word in repentance as individuals responding to the gospel with faith before we're ever able to agree to obey God's word mutually as a community. So maybe the reason why so many churches have failed to be holy is that they're filled with unregenerate members. Maybe the reason why so many members of churches are so passive and unresponsive to calls for obedience 
is because they're still dead in their sins. Maybe the reason why so many lack a hunger for God's word is because they still have such a distaste for it, because they're still unregenerate. We need men who will stand and declare God's word. But we also need the Spirit of God to enlighten and convict us by the preached word. As John Spilsbury once wrote, It is by the Spirit the understanding is enlightened in the truth, the conscience convicted by it, the man has faith in it, has his duty to obey it, with the way open for it, and the word calling to it. So in other words, individuals who have received God's word and declared their belief in God's word, it's these people and these people alone who are able to make a commitment with other Christians to obey God's word. Which leads us to number three, the third step to recovering the church to be a community of truth. Number three, there has to be a mutual agreement to the truth. There has to be a mutual agreement to the truth. So the third step in recovering the community of truth is to agree together on a confession of faith. A church must be bound together in their understanding of God's word and share a mutual agreement of the truth. So confessions of faith should not be collecting dust. What a church believes in its doctrine is a thousand times more significant than how relevant its youth program is perceived. So don't pick a church on how cutting edge or relevant their programs might be. You need to pick a church based on its preaching, based on its doctrine, because Christians should hunger for truth, and churches should be teaching truth. Our local churches, you know, even our conventions, our associations, our denominations, they are all held together either by two things. Number one, they're going to be held together by confessionalism. Or number two, they're going to be held together by pragmatism. So either we're going to aim at results and let our convictions just fall by the wayside, or we're going to aim at convictional integrity and just leave the results to God. As John Spilsbury once wrote, such by mutual agreement with truth or by faith one together in truth. So what makes us one together in our mutual agreement with the truth? That same truth is what we were enlightened in by salvation. So what binds Christians together? What ought to unite them together so that they will covenant together to be a church? What ought to bring them together is doctrine, and most of all, the gospel. So part of being a member of a church is your Christ-given responsibility to make sure that the people we're evaluating for membership also agree with us on the most important things. 
So when you're thinking about voting on someone to be a member of the church, you got to ask, does this couple seeking to join us as a church, do they understand the gospel? This is what we call regenerate church membership. This is a part of this. It's the church taking responsibility for itself, watching over one another. So we make sure, to the best of our human ability, that new members know and embrace the essential matters of Christian doctrine. Now, granted, we can't see their hearts, but what we can see is the fruit of their lives, and we can hear the confession of their faith. Which leads us to number four. Number four, an orderly practice of the truth. So the fourth step in recovering the community of truth is to agree together to obey the truth. So what do we call this? We call this meaningful membership. And part of that is what I just said, making sure the members we vote in do believe in the gospel. But also we need to make sure that the members coming into our churches agree to help each other to be disciples. Because one of the signs of true Christians is that they are those who will agree to help each other as disciples, obey what God's word tells them to do, which would include rightly practicing baptism, as the New Testament says it should be practiced, and rightly practicing the Lord's Supper, as the New Testament says it should be practiced. We're going to spend some time in future episodes discussing each one of these, but let me conclude today's episode thinking about member covenants. So it's good even as a church to have an actual document called a member's covenant that explicitly says the promises we make to one another as members of a church. So here's what FBC Lindale's member covenant says. It says this, Having been led by the Spirit of God to trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, having been baptized upon our profession of faith, and being in agreement with the church's doctrine and practices, we covenant before the Lord together with the other members of First Baptist Church Lindale, Texas, to pursue holiness through personal and family spiritual disciplines and through the following corporate expectations. We will worship by gathering faithfully unless providentially hindered, by growing as word-centered worshipers, by preparing for worship, by celebrating the Lord's Supper faithfully. We will fellowship by acting in love and seeking reconciliation with one another, by promoting unity and striving for peace in the church, by developing authentic, accountable relationships with God's people, by watching over, encouraging, and praying for one another. We will serve by cultivating a servant's heart, by developing our spiritual gifts to build the body, by looking for and meeting the needs of others, by giving our time, talents, and material possessions. We will impact by living godly lives, by guarding and sharing the gospel, 
by supporting and participating in missions and outreach, by leveraging our opportunities wisely with unbelievers. We commit to this congregation holding us accountable. And if we should leave this fellowship, we will unite with another church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. So in conclusion, as we continue in our commitments as local churches to the pure preaching of the word of God in the gospel and the right administration of the ordinances, let us press on to better understand and celebrate the nature of the church. And we're going to explore this in more in forthcoming episodes and articles, especially as we think about what is church membership and why should we have church membership? Because a lot of people have questions about this. Some people say church membership is not in the Bible. Well, we're going to examine that claim. I want to thank you for listening to Big Truths. For more information and for articles, you can go to our website, bigtruths.net. And I'll meet you again next week. We're going to open another door for more Big Truths.